Welcome to the 12 Days of Edition Wars, featuring 2nd Edition AD&D Players and DMs Options books. In this marathon series, we are taking a close look at a set of special books that are often considered D&D 2.5. On the 10th day of Edition Wars, my DM gave to me High Level Campaigns Part 1 with 10 Lords of Leaping over the campaigns. I don't know. The campaign High Level Campaigns are appropriate to have lords in them, correct? Well, sure. The Ten Lords of Leaping are because they're now your vassals, and you told them to leap. On the way up, they asked how high. I see. Yes, I forgot the asking how high part. <laughs> Brandis, tell me about this book. Okay, so I am I'm very excited about this book. Um, I am going to say that this book is functionally the DMG2 of all of 2nd Edition. So in... In second edition, there's nothing formally called the DMG2. In third and fourth, those editions both have a book that is formally titled the, the DMG2. And without exception, it, those are some of the best books of their whole edition because they have the freedom to go really deep on advice and weird ideas. And that's what we come here for advice and weird ideas and they're produced at a time in that edition's life cycle where the fan base might have been ready for those weird ideas right absolutely absolutely uh so so my my thesis as we go through this book is going to be that it is a dmg2 and that its advice is going to stake it out as one of the best books of the edition now, I do want to make sure I give a nod to uh, my, my beloved uh, blue cover books here. Uh, the the Campaign Sourcebook and Catacomb Guide, Creative Campaigning, Complete Book of Necromancers, and Monster Mythology. Uh, also the Castle Guide, which are aimed at the same target, but they're uh, not all maybe reaching the same bar. Mm, sorry. Uh, I don't think any of them quite uh, land the role of uh, a DMG2. Uh, if any of them were going to, it'd be the Campaign Source Book and Catacomb Guide. Now, that's the one written by Janelle Jaquays, right? Oh, is it? I think so, because that one. Hell, yes, it is. That one is the, that is full of stuff that she wrote for the DMG that they didn't have space for. Oh, nice. I didn't know that. Yeah. Well, that explains a lot. Yeah. So, and you know, she kicks ass. So. <laughs> well, I I mean, that, that book uh, is one that I uh, really, really dove into hard uh, when I finally picked it up as a, a second ed DM. Um, it's one of the few blue book, blue cover uh, second edition books that I had that I kept. Like I got rid of almost all my second edition stuff. That's one of the books I kept. Well, I don't stand for that sort of blasphemy <laughs> of getting rid of anything <laughs> ever. Well, I have them in PDF. I got rid of the hard copy. Uh, it's it's worth noting that when you heard me on air <laughs> check the author, that was me having it within easy reach at all times yes. from my recording chair. <laughs> Not a joke. <laughs> <laughs> yes, which one of us knew the author? <laughs> I I didn't say that you were 
you're older than me, Sam. <laughs> oh, ouch. So ouch. Oh, oh, I wound you and you wound me right back. Oh. Oh. And this is how the wars started. <laughs> <laughs> Except we're on the same side. <laughs> so, okay. Well, uh, do you want to dig into this book then? I absolutely do. And I think that it uh, it gets off to a strong start with the seven maxims. Yes. Uh, and Which I love I, the it, word maxim, and I wish that it was used more. But not just by a, you know, sort of all flash, low rent men's magazine. Right. Yes. <laughs> yes. Playboy, I wasn't that. even thinking about that. <laughs> yes. Uh, so, so the seven maxims get a lot of essay content, and folks, I'm here for thoughtful essay content any day of the week. Right. I've been a blogger for ten years. Mm-hmm. Freaking, of course. Uh, well, let's let's tell our audience what they are first off. So, so first off, we have don't depend on the dice, uh, and what that really means is. Um, we're going to have a conversation about probability and uh, how you need to inject narrative into the outcomes of the dice and not just uh, sort of let the numbers stand and move on to the next action, mm-hmm. um, which is really important advice that um, I do my best to remember, but uh, the difference between uh, – an exciting fight and a not exciting fight is very often uh, how much energy I have to put into cool descriptions and how much energy that the PCs have to, you know, frame things in an in interesting way themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, it talks about the key to maintaining tension in the game without inflating the level of power is to create situations where the players must rely on their own memories and reasoning skills. So it's talking about, uh, it's talking about encounter design and uh, how encounters could be testing something other than just your ability to kick out damage. Uh, and I mean, this is stuff that I have been saying for as long as I've been writing um, and I mean, what you, what you get into as we talk about developing encounter design away from, um, just, uh, c- can you bash it good enough mm-hmm. is something more like a, um, either a role-playing intensive encounter where you're fighting someone, but also trying to persuade them, or we're talking about. Uh, something approaching an MMO raid encounter where you have to, you know, manage some kind of uh, resource or stay out of the fire or whatever and be much more engaged to, to succeed because of various factors. So it's really cool to see that uh, discussed here. So let me, let me read a quote from the book for the, for the audience's sake. Give your players problems that require them to think rather than roll dice. Complex political struggles, mysteries, puzzles, and the like, they challenge players directly. 
keep the game centered on the characters, present the players with situations that make them search for new ways to use their characters' abilities. Do not eliminate the dice rolling altogether, however, because everyone likes to trash something once in a while. (laughs) And players expect to be able to do that with their high-level characters' newfound powers, just like they would otherwise. So it's asking for a balanced approach. It's not saying, oh, they got to high level. Suddenly we're going to shift the game and make it all about this other thing that they haven't cared about this whole time. It's saying find ways to challenge them. And I appreciate that. Yep. And and so that is just a reminder that this is advice that people have been giving to GMs for decades and because new GMs are always entering the hobby and uh, experienced GMs can fall into bad habits and even experienced adventure writers can mm-hmm. be lazy right. at times. Sure. Uh, it, the advice stays fresh and th- this is frankly as, as good of advice today as it was when it was written. Um, maxim number two, intelligent adversaries is also as good of advice today as it was when it was written. Uh, it's talking about you know role playing the creature's intelligence appropriately, not making every creature a super genius. Just think about its level of intelligence mm-hmm. and do that. Uh, think about weaknesses and how creatures could could reasonably cover for weaknesses. Uh, and actually, I mean, this section gives you specific examples of thinking about weaknesses and thinking about strengths and how to – I mean, this is several pages here in in an effort to show – you know, so let's, uh, let's talk about this great book that was just published by uh, Keith Amon, or I'm probably pronouncing his name wrong, called The Monsters Know What They're Doing. I was just about to bring that up. You beat me to the punch on that one. That entire that entire book is this this part of this chapter, right? I mean, of course, greatly expanded, and it's that same idea of look at these creatures and use them to their abilities. If they're unintelligent, you would you would cause them to behave in an un- unintelligent way. But when you're getting characters that are ninth level and above, sometimes they're going to have to have adversaries that are more intelligent. And what do you do about that? How do you make it so that that becomes an inventive, engaging interaction rather than just, oh, kill more trolls, kill more slugs? Yep, absolutely. And, I mean, this this goes into a lot of depth for, for individual types of uh, monster features and individual mm-hmm. problems mm-hmm. that the monsters would face and need to solve, such as ranged attacks or long-term pursuit, or that kind of thing. Like That's, I mean, as you say, uh, Keith Amon has done as well in 2019, publishing this in a longer, more detailed form as, as this book did when it was released rather a few years earlier. Looks like 1995. Uh, bad guys don't fight fair is another way to phrase the same idea. So, I mean, we could we could do uh, three episodes just on this, and it would not be wasted time. Uh, it's just maybe a little outside. I'll remit right now. 
I, I could pick any of these. So the, the way this is formatted, there are these red sort of section headings almost. I could write a two-page blog post on each of these little two-paragraph exactly. sections. It's that rich. That material yep. is that rich. Um, so this is a nice section. So the third maxim, control magic. Uh, and this is just about, you know, rarity is where mystery and excitement come from, but don't be too stingy. Just <laughs> think about what you're doing. Think about how magic bends reality and bends uh, game balance and acknowledge it and internalize it. And I mean, yeah, this is, this is good advice. Um, removing unwanted mag- magical items is always going to be a, a, a sticky wicket. Um, right. Yeah. And I'm not going to say that I think this necessarily nails that particular point in its best possible way. Mm-hmm. Um, just because I think the only answer you can really go with is to step out of character, talk to the player and say, uh, look, you have something that's ruining my ability to create stories that, that are challenging and exciting. Can we do something? I think that operating through strictly in character channels, uh, can send really complicated, unpleasant messages and, uh, lead to a lot of hurt feelings. And it, it feels uh, punitive for punishment's sake right. rather than right. an actual, like, here's a consideration. I want the game to remain fun for everyone. And this particular item that you have and that you are using as much as possible is making it very difficult right. um, to challenge everyone. Now, there's also a section on magic shops and... Boy, if you want to uh, get 500 angry comments in a, a Facebook post, just go talk about magic shops <laughs> and the, the big Facebook right. D&D group and then duck, duck and cover. What can I tell you? Like, it, Magic shops are contentious yeah. in 2019. And mm-hmm. this takes the position that you shouldn't have you know, magic shops as such. Magic shouldn't become a commodity that I have a really hard time with outright stating magic shouldn't become a commodity because I, I think that is ignoring human nature too much. Um, Sure. I think that when you say it shouldn't become a commodity, what you mean is it shouldn't be in the hands of the middle class. There's, there's nothing that you can't attach a price tag to, you know, for the wealthiest of the wealthiest in a medieval setting, or even more than that, you know, an imperial Roman setting, the the, the heights of wealth, Mm -hmm. the wealthiest controlled are just sort of, uh, I I guess I have this magic, but sure. I actually do want something more like uh, hundreds of acres of land in Gaul. Uh, Sure. I guess I'll make that trade. <laughs> well, now it's a commodity. Sure. Right. But but my, my point is just trying to stop people from trading magic at all in your setting is um, not really the, the best approach to me. I think that you instead want to just 
um, put some bright lines around you know, how much is going to be traded by any one merchant. Uh, it, it isn't that you walk up to a merchant and get to treat the DMG as a shopping list. It's instead right. uh, the merchant says, you know, here's my short list of magic items and you know, here's my prices, take it or leave it. Mm-hmm. And I mean, for a very popular example, uh, Gilmore's Glorious Goods and uh, Pumat Soul's shop in the Critical Role campaigns are doing exactly that. Uh, they don't have every item that's out there. Uh, they do have a wide variety of things. It's a list of things that PCs burn down fairly fast. Uh, I don't necessarily want PCs thinking of all the money they get as building up toward the next magic item. That's a very third ed and fourth ed mode that I'm glad fifth doesn't um, hold with as much. But to say that magic can't be a commodity is is hard for me to accept is what I want to say. Yeah. I mean, I, I get where you're coming from. I, I think the issue is where this statement was coming from. You know, my issue with saying uh, so. Here's here's the thing. The reason there's let me put it this way: if you're a magic shop owner and you have you know a hundred magic items in in your store, what is to stop a band of high level, you know? deviants from coming and raiding your magic shop and stealing everything so uh i mean i that's a rhetorical question i know there's lots of answers i could give myself for that uh but the idea is the same of um if some magic shop has a particular item that is sought far and wide it's not going to have that item very long it's the same idea as if my party finds an artifact that has been sought after for a really long time and it's a very famous fabulous artifact and word gets around that they they have it guess what there are going to be people coming to take it from them right sure uh it's the same i it's the same idea with magic shops right that you if you have a magic shop on every corner well then magic is available to every single person who walks down that street whether it's in the form of a consumable potion or or whatever, right? Theoretically speaking, right? This is all still rhetorical. It, it's it's a uh, it's a uh, hypothetical, uh, right? Because of course, not everyone can afford the magic items. But that's that's not the point of this. The point sure, of this is, but... if there's a magic shop on every corner, like a convenience store, then what's the point? Well, it's it's the same reason that there can be a whole row of jewelry stores, and. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, no matter how saucy one of us feels, we don't just <laughs> stroll in and clean up. Right. Because, like, maybe we get out of Jared's without having our heads blown off. That that could happen. <laughs> uh, you know, bad odds, but it could happen. Uh, but from that point on, you're marked, right? Right. Right and and right. the so my response to the PCs raided the magic item shop is okay. So the owner of the magic item shop hired more adventurers to come after you and punish you to death. Oh, see, but I but I'm not talking about PCs. I'm talking about any 
powerful thug or king or lord or whatever? Why would they allow magic shops in their town to have all these artifacts? Uh, I mean... You know what I'm saying? Like, why why wouldn't they just confiscate those items? I guess that you can have kings that uh, don't believe that they need the support of their society. And, like, the, the answer is because social structures actually bind the people in control of them, too. Well, and see, that's what I'm getting at, though, right? And what I'm saying is, I think what happened is, the reason this section is even in this book is that around this time, right, the Tome of Magic has been released, Spells and Magic has been released, there's all sorts of of different magical items that are becoming known, there's a lot of players, and people, and, and the Forgotten Realms is extremely popular at this time, and there, uh, Forgotten Realms is very high magic. There's magic all over that place. And I think the reason why this is presented as such is the same question that I'm asking. And your answer is the only valid answer, right? I mean, based, you know, in the short term, right? It's the, the only way to quickly answer that question. But I think at this time, you know, maybe DMs weren't able to come up with that answer, right? Sure. They've got players, players that are saying, well, this doesn't make sense or, oh, well, how come I can't buy that exact thing I want at that magic shop because they have every freaking thing else in the book, right? So I feel like this section of the book is a, is a response to the proliferation of the idea that magic is just everywhere, but that, that then translates to, well, it's there for the taking because I'm this high-level fighter or whatever. Uh, sure. And that's not really how it works. Sure. Um, anyway, uh, moving on to the fourth maxim, I suppose. Uh, yep. Be aware of demographics. Uh, okay, well, I guess we're on the same topic again. <laughs> but it's, right. it's talking about uh, how to engage with world building. Uh, and, I mean, ta- talking about controlling magic is world building. Well, so is uh, being aware of demographics. And... Uh, this is definitely a section that the third edition DMG is going to expand upon. Really, really go after. Yeah. I mean, it's one of the really surprising things about that book. Like, it, every DMG is going to have its own like subject that the, the the creators thought was really important and under-examined in previous editions. Mm-hmm. And in this one, in, in the, the third DMG, it's demographics. Like there is a, a, a real concept of trying to approach verisimilitude in your demographics. Now, I'm not going to say that I think it gets there, uh, but it, I'm not going to say that I think it doesn't either. I think that it's still going to be about how the GM presents it, mm-hmm. but um, this is interesting because I think it's a, a big jumping off point for that because the second ad DMG didn't engage with ideas of demographics in the same way. It didn't want to talk about, you know, who's the highest level person in this population based on population size or approximate number in 1 million. Uh, it wasn't going to come out and say specifically that there was approximately one 18th level character per million. Right. Which interesting thing to say. 
a hard argument to make for Forgotten Realms. This this chart doesn't just doesn't work in the realms. <laughs> and considering how many people in Waterdeep have been named and statted, uh, we even have receipts. But that's right. fine. Well, once again, see, but this is the same conversation as as the last conversation we were having, that you run into this problem when you have a world or a setting where, well, it's a big, you know, this is a giant sandbox that all of these D&D players are playing in, and you have to keep producing content for those D&D players. And when you produce content, they don't want to hear about the, you know, 999,999 commoners. They want to know about the one eighteenth level wizard or the one eighteenth level rogue or the you know what I mean? So you end up with sure. these NPCs that are at a much higher rates than this demographic chart. Oh, oh, oh for sure. Oh for sure. And you know, I don't think the book has any real expectation that you're going to just run these numbers mm-hmm. and make this happen. Right. And and that's fine. It's a thought experiment, right? It's a it's a look. When you think about it this way, it it makes it different, right? That to think about, okay, well, there's only one eighteenth level character of any class per one million individuals, right? Right. There's only one eighteenth level fighter, one eighteenth level wizard, what, what, right? And so, therefore, uh, you know that that's putting a number on it that is at least imaginable, right? Like you're not saying three trillion, right? Never three trillion. Like three trillion is a number I can't imagine, but one million is a number I can kind of imagine. I've seen it throughout my life, referenced, and you know, I see I've seen it written, and I can imagine it. Sure. And I can imagine one million people. Sure. And to think, okay, well, only one of those of each class is going to be 18th level. Right. Uh, people. Do have some really odd ideas about demographics when it comes to medieval societies. It has to be said. Uh, there's an article I was just reading about how messed up the demographics of Game of Thrones really are. But that's fine. <laughs> you know what? Neither here nor there. Um, <laughs> argument for another right. night. Yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, because th- I don't know squat about Game of Thrones, but okay. So, so it would be a short conversation with me. <laughs> uh, I'll send you the article if I can find it again. It's uh, it's a good read for anyone who yeah. cares about medieval world building. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Anyway. Um, yeah. So the, the point here in this book is to get the DM to think about the fact that the characters – because remember, this is about high-level campaigns. It's not talking about first-level characters for a reason. Right. Right. The point here is when the DM is thinking about the world that these characters are now inhabiting, the DM needs to be realizing that these characters that are ninth level are rare. Yep. You know, when you when you look in the monster manual and you see that there's a rarity value, oh, this is uncommon or this is rare. That's the same as these PCs. They are extremely rare now as soon as they get up into these higher levels. Yep. Um and so that has us also moving on to the fifth maxim pretty cleanly. Right. Uh, think on an epic scale. Uh, heroes are not anonymous. Well, that is clearly just the follow-on from <laughs> right. You know, an 18th level character is literally a one in a million individual. Uh, right. And you know, a lot of the ideas that we're seeing here are actually things that, uh, like I like I said, the third ed DMG 
is going to engage with, but Eberron is going to put front and center of its whole setting con- setting concept, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, because the the Eberron campaign setting of Third Ed went so far out of its way to say that by fifth or sixth level you're starting to become one of the higher level people around and you're just becoming a rarer and rarer commodity as you go up from about fifth or sixth level. Uh, It really emphasizes that most of the world is low level and uh, high level characters and high level threats are super rare. And so I think that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, And so heroes deserve heroic tasks with far-reaching impact, right? These are all, uh, mm-hmm. these are all uh, adventure writing guidelines that really apply to um, both both this and later editions. Like nothing's changed here. Um, it, it's all to say, sort of, you're not cleaning rats out of a basement at fifteenth level anymore. This section also mentions something, though. It mentions basically what I was talking about in the magic shop section, right? Like this, that actually speaks to how well this all flows, these seven maxims. But let me, let me talk about what this is, is saying. It says the PCs set all kinds of things in motion uh, when they enjoy the spoils of victory. A treasure as large as a dragon's hoard is bound to attract attention, perhaps even before they begin spending it. If they carry it off by normal means, thieves and brigands are bound to take notice. Once the PCs begin to spend their money, the local economy might boom from the influx of cash, especially if they spend it on things like castles, land, and businesses. However, the local economy might also suffer a ruinous inflation. Yep. Eventually, thieves and other adventurers learn about all the neat gems and magical items that the PCs have recovered, and they may plot to steal some of those for themselves. So that's that's exactly what I was trying to get at with the magic shop idea. Of yeah, for sure. Of it, it's just trying to say put consequences in. Now, whether whether I'm I'm not actually even espousing that idea. Whether one agrees with that idea or uses that in their game is is another matter. However, they choose to do those things, um, but. You know, once again, this this sort of idea of well, there are consequences. You know, there's a really fine line between consequences for actions and what feels like punishment, right? So sure. you have to really be careful. So, so for this, I do have to tell you about a short run campaign that a friend of mine ran years and years ago. This is in, in third edition. Um, we were fifth or sixth level characters uh, we, we rolled up the fifth or sixth level characters to start and uh, he had us in the first session discover a treasure hoard of a million gold pieces in value nice. it was a mixture of gold and magic items and other sure. stuff right. and so literally the point of the campaign was now what do you do right like in, in yeah. no sense had we earned that treasure hoard, right. not even a little bit. And right. so it was an incredibly paranoid campaign of <laughs> trying to slowly yeah. bring gold into um, a, a warehouse that we established and build up security so that we could, you know, wind up keeping about half of the money. Right. Um, right. And then there were magic items in in the hoard that did 
you know, weird, horrible things like uh, summoning demons that we talked to about stuff. It was really, really fascinating, and it ran for maybe all the four sessions, but it was super interesting. It's a, it's a, it's almost like a case study, right? It's a, it's a, if you had everything your character could ever, yeah, want, exactly. Here's the problems that come with it, right? Yep. Yeah, it was it was very kind of speculative fiction in that way. Yeah. This this section ends with this sentence. Remember that dragons have offspring and long memories. <laughs> <laughs> so, um once again though, I guess my only caveat to this and I really I love this book, right? But my only caveat is you got to be careful about making something that is just a natural what you see as a as the dm what you see as a natural consequence to different events and actions you have to be careful that it doesn't feel like punishment to the players it's that same idea of oh just take away their magic items no you can't do that uh, sure i agree with you that have to try something else first you know i think that the way i would phrase that would be that if you want something to be understood as a risk or a possible consequence just Find a, find a way to signpost that, you right. know, and be doing that at the beginning of the campaign. You know, talk about well, you can do that, but here's something that might happen. And you know, if you communicate the stakes to your players so they understand, well, if I have some bad rolls or make a bad move, you know, this is what it could cost me. Well, mm-hmm. that's that's just part of narrative. I mean. When we watch TV shows, like establishing stakes and and risks is part of camera shots, right? But in that in that case, what you're describing, then that's choice, right? And that's and and you're just you're just saying what I was trying to say, but a lot better, right? <laughs> because what I was saying was from the DM's perspective, just make sure that you don't make it seem like you're punishing. But you're saying the way to not seem like you're punishing is just tell them. Find a way to tell them. Right. You know, like, you, you like don't telegraph it. Yeah, it's the maxim that's missing from this list is what you think is obvious is probably not obvious to the players. <laughs> so, well, yeah, because that that should be in the first DMG. That doesn't have to wait for high level stuff. If you want the players to know something, you have to tell them. Uh, sure. That that is very fair. Um, but anyway, now we're off on a tangent again. So. <laughs> All right, so so our next maxim is plan ahead, and I mean I, I I certainly agree with this for high level play. I think that for low to mid level, running up to about ninth level play, you can get away with a lot on um, fairly marginal planning. Uh, but certainly, as you start to shift into longer term play, I mean, there's just no way um, the things that villains have going on the assets they have to have just to be threats at that level uh, in terms of you know tricks up their sleeve it just takes more and uh, this is just one of the truths of uh, games like D&D or any White Wolf game um, you know you hit a power level where things become a lot more complicated uh, because PCs, uh, whether through magic items or spells or whatever, uh, have a lot of really involved tricks up their sleeve that counter a lot of ordinary villain things. 
and you know you don't really want to call it an arms race that's not that's not quite the point it's more starting to engage with counterplay and um either thinking about how to circumvent the counterplay or to win initiative on the counterplay so that the thing has happened before they can counter it or whatever. There's a ton of different ways to make that work, but you do have to be thinking about it if you're here to pose a threat. And so this is saying very much the same thing. And everything about this is advice that is, again, as true now as it was when it was penned. There's, there's nothing about this that has really changed in any significant way. None of this so far. We're on page around page 28, 30, something like that. And all this advice, because it it's not about mechanics, it's about the game. You know, it's it's about when you sit at the table and you're playing the game, here are things that you should have thought about beforehand. It's not about, well, who gets a plus one and a plus two and what's your stat bonus and blah, blah, blah. It's, it's about the actual game. Right. So, so this is a, another just great section, and, and there's no way to, like, to, to, to skip it. It's just – it's been presented in so many different phrasings over the years, but this is a, a very like, clean, usable one. Like um, – I appreciate the reminder that not all consequences have to be bad. Uh, it's very easy as a GM to get into uh, how can I you know, twist the player's actions against them and make every consequence bad. And, you know, a Rabbit reminded me recently that in uh, in my own campaign, I was teetering on the edge of doing that and just undoing all of their sort of the point of all their victories and uh, that was what I needed to hear at that moment to you know go back and re-examine what I was doing and rewrite some of the you know, consequences of victory um, because they they actually killed a, a very important bad guy and I realized that you know my instinct was to try to undermine that victory and nope, nope, that is exactly wrong. That is exactly what I need to not do. I need to instead lean into it and uh, instead shift the scale of the campaign to have them have different kinds of problems now. Uh, so I, I thought that was, I think that is very salient advice to everything that's going on in this section. Yeah, it sort of it, it brings together those those two sort of problematic things we talked about previously and it and it says, you know, while you're considering all those consequences that you're going to produce and make, you know, make relevant in the game, also consider that some consequences should be beneficial. You you can't just yep. always have a bad consequence for the choices that the PCs are making. Uh, right, and most of all, I think that's because it teaches the PCs not to engage. Like, we if we can't ever improve anything, then why are we here? Right. Yeah. What's it all? What's the point? You become nihilists. Yep. <laughs> um, and and so finally, the seventh maxim is share responsibility. Um, and 
this is very, very different kind of advice. It is doing something very different from the, the maxims before it. And, uh, and different from all the other things that were in the core rule books. Oh, for sure. In every other edition. Right. It's talking about how to think about characters and how to think about goals and how to get useful creative input from your players that makes the campaign something they actually want to play rather than uh, sort of whatever the GM can spew out of their, spew out of their imagination. And, you know, I, I'm personally a pretty big proponent of um, let's see what I can spew out of my imagination and see how I can make it appeal to you. Uh, mm-hmm. But I think that my twist on this would just be to learn to listen to what the players are doing and saying in character and take from that what they want to see. Uh, there's you know, a, a transparent, out-of-character communication about it uh, is helpful if you haven't established sort of a way of communicating about things or if you get off the same page that out-of-character communication is good for getting you back on it. But um, I, I care so much about making sure that there are new secrets for players to go after that I, I don't want them to be investigating secrets they invented. I don't think that's fun. Yeah. Um, but that said, um, this is also specifically addressing bookkeeping and really engaging with, if you've played a campaign from early levels and have gotten to high levels, there are now so many NPCs and factions and goals bouncing around that you need to just delegate some of the brain power. And that I think I agree with a bit more. Um, Mm -hmm. In my last session, there were two NPCs that came along in the adventure and it wasn't the PCs needed the needed their strength to win. It's that it was very narratively appropriate in my eyes that those NPCs would come along on the adventure because of what they cared about. Uh, you know, both the the PCs and the villain are things that they cared about, and so they wanted to be there and were willing to stick their necks out to come along. And so I had PCs run those characters in combat. I ran them on the role-playing side. The PCs ran them in combat. And it mostly worked. There were some, there were some minor issues. There are things I could have handled better and things I'll be trying to handle better in the future. But, you know, ultimately it was, uh, very similar to the sidekick rules from, um, the unearthed arcana article and the, um, essentials kit, uh, essentials kit. Thank you. So, so yeah. Um, this is the, you know, so I, I feel like this, this is the maxim that I feel was possibly came across as the most groundbreaking or, uh, caused the most problematic murmurings 
when it was written. Yep. Yep. Um, I feel like nowadays, once again, this is this is uh, you know pulling in. Nowadays, we sort of pull in so many different uh, elements from different games, and the designers of 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 games pull in different elements of things they enjoy, and it's seen as an okay thing, if not expected, to get buy-in from the players and to get to share the responsibility of th- certain things at the table and, you know, just different, you know, those suggestions have been floating around for years now. But when this article was written, when this book was written, that wasn't the case necessarily, at least not at D and D tables. So, uh, this was, this was something new. Now looking back on it, you know, 20 years later, uh, more than 20 years later, it's, you know, it's it's not all that groundbreaking, but at the time, you know, I appreciate it for the for what it was trying to do at the time. Yep. It would probably need a lot of reworking, a lot more maybe than some of the previous sections. I mean, the previous maxims, the way that they're discussed, I could basically take those and put them into my blog with very little change. Not that I would do that because that would be plagiarism, but you get my idea, right? I sure. could take them and put them with very little change in my blog and they would be advice that's perfectly relevant right now to this edition you know with with almost no change whereas this one number 7 I would have to change it I would have to update it okay that's fair so does that pretty much cover us for chapter 1 that covers chapter 1 chapter 2 is immense uh it is a a monster chapter um but I tell you what, a whole lot of this chapter is going to be us saying again, "Yep, that's good advice. That is mm-hmm. that is correct." <laughs> um, yeah, and I guess what I want to say about that is, like, especially because chapter two is is drilling down more, but but even in chapter one, like this good advice isn't a mystery. It it is not uh, wisdom handed down through some kind of, you know, cultic initiation. This is a framing of things that uh, are are foundational. Uh, and it's just, uh, we don't always remember that some of this is getting taken for granted. Like, this isn't always framed directly in a DMG1 for any edition. Well, let me, let me just read. I, here's what I want to do for the audience. I want to... This this chapter has uh, the very first few pages of it have these different little subheadings. I just want to read you the subheadings so you can get an idea of the beginning of this chapter. Here's the first subheading: Don't tell. It's talking about adventures, okay? Don't tell. Show. Don't overplan. Prepare. Don't force the action. Deal with encounters. Balance combat versus creativity. Don't inflate. Instead. You should enhance gifts and rewards. It talks about gifts versus rewards. Creating multiple threats. Don't kill. Scare. Having character knowledge. Don't ignore the rules. Be proactive, not reactive. Be responsive, not passive. Not all failures have to be catastrophic. That's the introduction to this chapter about adventures. Yep. I could write that today about 5th edition. 
Yep, everything in here is uh, good, important stuff. And I mean, I've I've got volumes and volumes of advice that it, that it, that are alternate phrasings of a lot of this stuff. And uh, uh, dear dear friend of the show, Mike Shea has done quite well for himself mm-hmm. with some particular phrasings of uh, don't overplan, prepare. And I mean, that's not to disparage. That's just saying, you know, no. Some sometimes you need to update the language a little bit, and sometimes the way that you know this this is what I tell my students all the time. You know, it's okay if you don't like me as an instructor, right? Like I I might not be your favorite professor because I might not present things the way that you need to hear them. Right. My method, my way of talking, my cadence, the words I use may not be the thing that you need in your brain to understand this material. That's perfectly okay. There's nothing wrong with that. Yep. You know, I tr- I try to do lots of things to fix that, you know, to to make sure I I do a, you know, cover a lot of bases and try to hit a large swath of students, but but it's the same idea here, right? I could take all this advice and I could turn it into my own blog post and it'll be using my words and the way that I think of things and the way that the examples I would pick. And that might speak to somebody now more than if they read the same section that said basically the same thing. Yep. And there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, that's what, that, that's what all this writing and all of our opinions and all that's all about. Well, and what I also want to say about this is that I've spent years and years as a LARP runner and so this advice isn't even specific to the to D and D or the medium of tabletop games. Uh, all of the headers that you came through, I mean, that is th- this works perfectly in the Buffer LARP campaigns I have played and run for years. Uh, just every word of this is is relevant and useful um, in terms of how to think about both. It, it, well, basically everything scaling from encounters to adventures to campaigns. Just every part of the different scale of events in the course of a campaign, this advice is relevant and you need to be thinking through it. But uh, I think that we are not going to try to uh, plow through Chapter 2. I think we're going to uh, make that the end of this episode. Yeah, I'm I'm good with that. Uh, that's just the very beginning of chapter two, uh, and and uh, the next section of it is talking about plots, which really is a section on uh, how to create a campaign and plan it out. And I think that, uh, along with some of the other matter in the back of that chapter, I think it's a meaty enough chapter that we can we can probably have uh, deal with this chapter in the next episode. That sounds good. So thank you, everybody, for listening to uh, this episode of Edition Wars, as we have covered the first part, first chapter and a touch of the option, high-level campaigns. My name is Brandis Stoddard, and my co-host is Sam Dillon. Sam, where can people find you online? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at DM Samuel, or you can find me on the Tome Show, or you can find me at RPGMusings.com, or you can find me on D&D Brief. If you need to email me, or actually Brandis will get this email too, if if, uh, if you email us uh, an Edition Wars question, at D-N-D-E, 
brief, B-R-I-E-F, that's dndbrief at gmail.com. That is my email address that I'm using for gaming nowadays. Uh, and that is a reference to my stream, which is hosted every other Sunday on the Don't Split the Podcast Network. Where can people find you? Well, I uh, blog at brandastoddard.com and I write for tribality.com. And I'm on Twitter at Brenda Stoddard, and I have a Patreon that is Brenda Stoddard. Excellent. So that is me. All right. Okay, everybody. We hope you've been enjoying this series. We are almost done. Coming down to the home stretch. Look, mate. Three generations ago, my ancestors forged the Great Blade Skull Splitter. With it, they won the Goblin Wars, the Hobgoblin Wars, the Orc Wars, the Demon Wars, the Elf Wars, and the Gelatinous Cube Wars. And that one doesn't even make sense because they don't have skulls. Now, all these years later, the legend of the Great Skull Splitter grows. Offering dice to help you create your own legends, Skull Splitter Dice makes the highest quality dice beautiful dice of both plastic and metal. Want to roll bones that look like bones? or just something with enough heft to split the skulls of your enemies, Skull Splitter Dice has that and more. Check them out now at SkullSplitterDice.com slash Tomeshow and use the coupon code Tomeshow with all little letters and get 15% off. Now get out there, split some skulls, and build some legends.